0: Romans chapter one, beginning in verse eight, Paul writes, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all proof positive he's from the south, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers Making request, if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you. That I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often plan to come to you. But was hindered until now that I might have some fruit among you, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The first chapter of Romans begins with a salutation in verses 1 through 7. And now it continues with Paul's explanation for why he is writing this epistle in verses 8 through 17. Later, Paul will lay out a conversation about sin and condemnation, how the whole world is in this Awful, penetrating, deep darkness and how God's wrath is revealed against lost humanity in verses 18 through 32. But now he's going to talk about motives. He's going to talk about his motives. And I think if we're honest, each and every one of us cares about motives We will often ask and answer that question. Why am I doing this? Why am I thinking this? Why am I saying this? Motives are factors or circumstances or reasons why people do what they do. Why are some people happy? And others sad. Why are some people faithful and others unfaithful? Why do some serve Jesus with what seems like effortless joy and others struggle to believe anything? Why are some people self-destructive and others selfless? Why do some people find it easy to believe and serve while others wallow in the muddy waters of unbelief and in the dark dungeon of doubt? Why do people become counselors, teachers? Ministers, financial advisors, farmers, police officers, home builders, ministers, mothers, monsters. In the book of Proverbs, in chapter 21, verse 2, it says, a person's whole conduct may be right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs The motives we might want to know what we're doing and we are confused even about our own actions. God looks not simply at the gift, but the intentions of the giver. Oswald Chambers observed Jesus offends men because he lays emphasis on the unseen life, because he speaks of motives rather than of actions. And Frederick William Faber said Christianity is a religion of motives, ways of acting and reasons for acting more than actions. Unquote. Paul will reveal his motives for ministry. In high school, I played football. I was the running back. I was the guy who caught the ball and had to run with it. And the reason why I think they made me a running back is because I could run faster than anyone else. And I really despised being hit. When I was a kid, Georgia Tech was playing an opponent. The score was seven to six, Georgia Tech. And they were inside of the 10-yard line, and there was only a few moments left in the game. And they called a timeout, and the coach said to the quarterback, look, there's just a few seconds left. Son, whatever you do, do not, I repeat, do not throw the football. And so the quarterback lined up over the center, and he was just overwhelmed with this desire to throw the football. It was so powerful, and he couldn't resist. And he threw the football for an interception, and the fastest defensive back on the other team started running for a touchdown, and he got past every single offensive player. He slipped past the quarterback, and the quarterback ran and ran and finally tackled him, and the game was over. The opponent, the opponent, the opposing coach talked to Georgia Tech's coach and said, you know, my defensive back is a world class sprinter. He's one of the fastest kids in the nation. I can't believe your quarterback ran him down and tackled him. And the coach said, well, your boy was running for a touchdown. My boy was running for his life. It's all about motives, and you'd be surprised what you're capable of doing, depending on what's motivating you. Paul is a believer. He anticipates the questions the Romans are asking. Why are you coming here? What is it that you want? How do we know if you really belong here? If you cared about us, why did it take so long for you to get here? And again, Paul knows that everyone is an immoral monster apart from God's Christ. From God's perspective, there's something wicked and wrong with us. In chapter three, Paul comes to the conclusion that the whole world is guilty before a holy and a righteous God. He'll say there's none righteous, no, not one. In chapter three, verse 10, there's none who understand. There's no one who seeks after God. They've all turned aside, he'll say. Sin has left an indelible mark. There is a deep and permanent wound on all of us. But Paul is going to remind them that Jesus can change everything, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, he'll say in chapter three, verse twenty two. And so he writes in verse eight, a brief explanation. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Paul decides to reveal himself before he reveals his theology. Again, often when a person visits a church or a congregation, the people are wondering, they're saying, who is this person? What does this person want? What are they after? Paul wants to assure the Romans that he's motivated by a genuine love for God and a genuine love for the people of Rome. And when he says, first, I thank my God, he uses the pronoun of personal possession. It isn't religion. It's my God. My faith. A real Jesus. Jesus. Paul doesn't thank the Romans, but he thanks rather a personal, possessive God. And that should become an insight for each and every one of you, because your faith isn't the faith simply of your mother and your father and your grandmother and your grandfather. It is your faith. And Paul says that is spoken of throughout the whole world. He's talking about the Roman world. We know from secular historians that Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome in 89 or in AD 49. And again, remember, in the Roman way of thinking, a Jew is a Jew is a Jew, a messianic Jew is a Jew is a Jew. And there is this conflict. There is this problem. There are these these incredible riots that begin to take place. And Claudius decides to kick everybody out. There seems to include what he called or at least what one Roman historian called Christus, which was a misspelling of Christ. And apparently when these Jews were scattered, it included real Christians who had come into a right relationship with God and Christ. And remember, the witness of Jesus in the city of Rome erupted in profound persecution and they began to go everywhere. And Paul, in his many travels, as he went from one place to another, he began to meet these Roman Christians. The church had apparently a great testimony in the world. In Paul's journeys, he heard about their strength. He heard about their faithfulness. What you need to ask is this. What made this church so strong? What was it about this church Well, I think we can glean something both from this passage and from the New Testament as a whole. First, the believers were living pure lives in a culture that was saturated with impurity and immorality and injustice. Rome was the capital of the known world. Rome was the social and political capital. It was also, in in a sense, the cultural and religious capital. But these believers were engaged not just in believing the right things about the Lord Jesus, but in the right labor for the right for the Lord Jesus. Wherever the Romans were at home or abroad, the believers were sharing, loving, serving. And apparently Paul had encounters with these Christians, just like with you. When you travel, you go from place to place. You might find yourself in New Mexico or Arizona or California and People ask you, where do you go to church? And I'm hoping that your testimony will be this testimony. That whether you're at home or you're away, you love Jesus. You serve Jesus in a capacity where everyone can see you. Are we standing firm and pure in a culture that is impure and base and morally polluted? And so. Paul writes in verse nine, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. And without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers. Paul calls on the Lord as his witness. To testify to the internal condition of what's going on inside of his heart to judge his motives. And remember, it has earlier been called the gospel of God. Now it's called the gospel of his son. And you'll do well every time you see in this book that word, the gospel, because that's the theme of the book of Romans. It is the gospel A.W. Tozer wrote, it is not what a man does that determines whether his work is sacred or secular. It's why he does it. I want to draw your attention to that expression. God is my witness whom I serve in the gospel of his son. It's the gospel that subjected Paul's spirit to God's son. That's the connection. A real gospel that changed a real person. The word serve is interesting. It's the word Latreo. It incorporates the concept of hire or service that is bought and paid for. And so when he basically says whom I serve with my spirit, the idea is a service that is bought and paid for. Back in the day, my father would retain an attorney. He would say, here's $10,000. If you ever get a call from me in the middle of the night, I expect you to be here. He He paid for his attorney in advance. That's kind of the idea here. Paul has been paid for in advance. Also, I want you to understand something. Paul is subject to the son because of the gospel. He's been delivered from sin and death and hell. And when a person realizes that they were subjects of Satan and sin, the most foolish thing that you could ever do is remain in that kind of slavery and bondage and refuse God's salvation. So what does it mean? What does it mean to serve the son in your spirit? I think it means that the spirit controls the body. In other words, the internal invisible you is what makes your body function, what you're thinking, how you're feeling. All of that is important. But in part, I'm going to suggest to you, if the believer is serving the son in the spirit, then the body will follow what the spirit is experiencing inside of you. What you are thinking, how you are feeling. Let me Put it a different way. I'm not suggesting that this is simply an attitude. It's not just simply a frame of mind. It isn't simply an emotion to be strong in the spirit means to be strong in the confidences of Christ. And when I say strong in the confidences of Christ, what I'm saying is you become aware of what Jesus has done and continues to do the reigning power of the Spirit, the promises that have been made. We may swim in a sea of pity and pride and greed and selfishness and wickedness and sink in our spirits into this defeated lifestyle. So how, how, how does the Lord keep your spirit strong? How do you conquer your emotions? How do you conquer your weaknesses? How do you conquer your passions and your lusts? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 12 gives us the clue. What does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. And the reality becomes when you start to starve the flesh and feed the spirit, your spirit becomes stronger. You pray. You love, you serve, you minister. The gospel stirred Paul to love and serve and then to pray. We know when Paul says that I'm praying for you, he's a man of intercessory prayer, a man constantly praying. Paul doesn't just talk about prayer or include the remark as a courtesy or pretend to pray or engage in some sort of religious exercise. Paul took the time and asked God to strengthen others. And if you would like to know the specifics of Paul's pattern of prayer, take the time. Go to Ephesians chapter three, verses 14 through 21 and begin to understand about Paul's prayer life. I did something that I may wind up regretting yesterday. I went back on Facebook. And I got to tell you something, I'm not fond of Facebook. I'm not a good Facebook person because I see it like really as fake book, not Facebook. So why am I on? Because my daughters-in-laws are posting pictures of my grandchildren. (laughs) And I want to see those pictures. Really bad. Bad enough to go back on Facebook. Facebook. And when I was on, almost immediately there was this deluge of comments, including one from Ed Taylor, who you and I have been praying for as we continue to pray for Eddie. And we continue to pray for Ed and Marie. And I wrote him a note and I said, I I continue to pray for you. And I meant it. And then prayed for him right at that moment. And you see, that becomes part of the point. When you say that you're going to pray for someone, really pray for them. In verse 10, it says, making request, if by some means, now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. Paul exposes himself as a man of thanksgiving. He exposes himself as a man of Prayer, he exposes himself as a man of concern. And again, in verse 10, we discover that Paul has a divine direction in life in verse 10. An unselfish interest in others in verses 11 and 13. A compulsion, he owes a debt. That's his responsibility in verses 14 through 17. The divine direction, making request, if by some means, now at last I may find a way in the will of God. Note that. Paul is reaching out and reaching forward in the will of God, not Paul's will. It's not Paul's willfulness, but rather God's will. Let me just bring out a couple of things to you real quickly. God's will isn't always according to our desires. And I want you to think about something else. Paul desires to go to Rome. And I want to share something with you because I think it's going to be important to you. For Paul, Rome represents the will of God. The end of the line. In other words, every molecule in Paul's body says, you must go to Rome. You must go to Rome. You must go to Rome. By the way, will Paul go to Rome? The answer is yes. Paul will eventually make his way to Rome. But do you think he's going to make his way to Rome because he booked An extravagant apple vacation at the Jerusalem Travel Agency or the Corinthian Travel Agency? Did he go, you know what? I noticed that I can get days and nights in Rome. We can see the Colosseum. No, the Colosseum didn't exist until 81 AD. We can go see the Forum. We can see all of these great sites in Rome. I mean, it is an amazing city. It's in a majestic city. I'm going to go to Rome. I'm going to book a passage. I'm going to have a pleasant journey. It's going to be great. Is it going to be great? Actually, Paul is going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be incarcerated. He is going to be beaten. He is going to be transferred from prison to prison to prison. He is going to leave Caesarea by way of boat. He is going to be shipwrecked on an island where he's going to be bitten by a snake. Every kind of conceivable hardship that you can imagine he is going to experience, but he is going to get to Rome. Why am I even telling you this? Because God has a will and a plan for each and every one of you. You see, the truth is you will go to the destination that God is calling you to. God has a plan and a purpose. He's leading you in a specific direction and you will get there, maybe not in the way that you anticipated, Maybe not in the way that you had hoped. He will find a divine direction. He will find a way in the will of God. And it brings about the first motivation in ministry. Look what it says in verse 11. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. What does this mean? Well, it means that Paul is no phony. I want to see you. As a matter of fact, when we look at Paul's writings in First Thessalonians, chapter two, verses seven and eight, it says, we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. In the book of Colossians, Paul says him speaking of Jesus, we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect or complete in Christ Jesus to this end. I also labor striving according to to his working, which works in me mightily. Paul's motive is ministry. I want to impart a spiritual gift. He wants to impart gifts. And and again, he's not so proud that he can't receive from the Roman saints. Look at verse 12. He says, that is that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Paul is willing both to give and to receive from the Roman saints. Paul is willing to both give and receive in what I'm calling a mutual ministry of encouragement. And I'm certain that there were saints in Rome who had physical needs. They had physical issues, emotional issues. They had all kinds of different issues. But Paul wants to focus on the spiritual reality of their life. And Paul is not only willing to give, but he's also willing to receive. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment. Did Paul have enormous gifts? No kidding. Did he have an amazing testimony? He has been called by Jesus to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Now, I want you to just think this through for just a moment. He's willing to receive from those who are less experienced, who are more immature, who have less ability. Paul says, I don't care. In humility and mod- modesty, he's willing to receive from the most modest Christian. And have you ever said silently to yourself, or maybe wickedly and stupidly out loud, this person that doesn't have anything to offer me. Oh my. What a horrible thing to say. We may think that we have more knowledge and we have more understanding and we have more maturity and we have more experience. But Paul wants the Romans to know something. That they have something to offer. Each other. And him. And you may not know it, but the person sitting right next to you. Or just behind you. Or maybe even all the way across the room in the sanctuary has something to offer you, something to give you, some word of encouragement to impart to you. Paul reminds us that we have so much to offer each other and he's writing to believers. I want you to think this through people who have received the Lord Jesus Christ. He's already spoken about their faith and their influence in the world. And so Paul isn't just speaking about imparting to them the gift of salvation because he can't do that. Only Christ can do that. And some have mistakenly read this to mean that Paul is going to impart to them some gift, but he's probably not speaking of the gifts of the Holy Spirit since the Holy Spirit is the giver of gifts. Paul is probably speaking of spiritual gifts in the broadest sense and the generalist sense of the term. He's talking about any kind of divinely empowered spiritual benefit that he could bring through preaching and teaching and exhorting and praying and guiding and discipling. And so Paul isn't interested in just seeing the sights. He doesn't want to pick up some cool Roman coins like I would if I were there. He doesn't want to see the ancient version of NASCAR and the chariot races. He wants to serve people. He wants to encourage people. Paul has an unselfish interest in others. And now let's visit the question again. What motivates you? What motivates you to serve? Is it an unselfish interest in others? What motivates you to serve? Do you want to be seen by human beings? Do you think you owe God some unpaid or unfinished debt? Do you see your service as a source of appreciation or personal satisfaction? George MacDonald wrote, quote, the secret of your own heart. You can never know, but you can know him who knows its secret. And you may not always be able to discern what is motivating you. But if you pay close attention, you can Invite the Lord Jesus Christ to discern the motives of your heart and ask Jesus, What is causing me to do what I'm doing? In verse 13, Paul writes, Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you but was hindered until now. Paul's plan was to go to Rome. Now, again, I want to remind you of something in the New Testament. Over and over again, or at least in two places, we read that Paul wanted to go to Asia. But Satan hindered him. He wanted to go to Rome. And the Holy Spirit forbade him. How do you know if it's Satan who's your obstacle? Or the Holy Spirit? How do you know if it's Satan putting a blockade in front of you? Or if it's the Holy Spirit asking you to go in a different direction. I'm going to suggest to you that it's the MO. The modus operandi. Satan works the same way that he has always worked. Through lying, cheating, stealing and destroying. If the methodology includes lying, cheating and stealing. Then you can be sure that Satan's at work. But if there's the gentle reminder by the Holy Spirit. And by the way, what is Paul looking for? I don't I want I don't want you to be unaware, brethren. I wanted to come to you. I've been hindered. Look what he says that I might have some fruit among you. Also, it isn't just to know more. It isn't. To just simply impart an enormous intellect, which he has. He's going to talk about the great themes of salvation and justification and glorification and exaltation. No one knows more, I think, than Paul does. It isn't just about faith and it isn't just about fellowship. It's about fruit. And that should cause each and every one of you to wake up. And say something. And that statement should be a faithful life will always lead to a fruitful life. That's the important notification for you. Being faithful is going to result in fruitfulness in your life. Fruitful, I'm going to suggest to you, not just at the beginning of your walk and not just in the middle of your walk, but in every part of your walk. We've all heard of the tender teens and the torrid twenties and the thrilling thirties and the forceful forties and the fretful fifties and the sensible sixties and the serene seventies. The aching eighties. Oh, the nodding nineties. Some of us might be thinking that. The most important part of our life is already over with. But what if that's not true? What if the greatest spiritual contribution that needs to be made is yet to be made? So he includes the second motivation, what I'm calling delight directed duty in verses 14 and 15. Look what it says in verse 14. I am a debtor, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and unwise. Paul confesses his debtor obligations. Now, again, there are three important I am statements made in the next few verses. I am a debtor. Verse 14. I'm ready. Verse 15. I'm not ashamed. Verse 16. Verse 16. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. He says, I am a debtor. I, I have a holy obligation to who to both Greeks and barbarians. You've heard me say over and over again, there's two kinds of people in the world, Italian people and people who wish they were. But the Greeks really believed it. They really believed there were only two kinds of people in the world, Greeks and anyone who wished they were Greek, but they were really barbarians. And by the way, the word barbarian comes from a Greek word. The Greeks used the word to describe anyone who didn't speak the Greek language. When they were when they would hear other people speak in foreign languages, they would hear Ba 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 kind of like when you hear a foreign language. <speaking in Spanish> well if you speak Spanish you go, No, I understood what you just said. Or if you're speaking French. Je ne parle pas le don't. You go. <speaking in Spanish> The Greeks are feeling that same thing. Paul says, I have a holy obligation to reach out to them with the gospel, the gospel of his son. Paul will speak to the Jew first, but he doesn't neglect the Greek or the barbarian because he is under a divine mandate, a Holy Spirit compulsion, a specific imparting by the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to suggest to you that the church has lost its credibility with the world largely because the church looks to the world to get something that it thinks that it needs instead of to give something that it has. You need from this world, really? Approval? Acclamation? Applause? Paul understands that they are sinners in need of a savior. And in first Corinthians chapter nine, verse 16, he says, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast about for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I've been entrusted with a stewardship, he's basically reminding us that he's motivated by one of two things, pain or pleasure reward or a stewardship, but don't let Paul fool you. There are times when ministry is its own reward. And if you were to ask Paul, tell me what you love the most about ministry, he would have said, I love it when people walk away from sin and they walk to the Savior. I love it when the darkness leaves their life. I love it when there is hope and grace and mercy and forgiveness. I would even suggest to you that Paul loved to study. He loved to study. He loved to dig deep. He loved to share the gospel. And so do I. But sometimes I don't. There are times when I would rather not pray. There are times when I would rather not prepare. There are times when I would rather not preach. But I do. For your sake. Paul is obligated. And so am I. And often what you do is going to fall into two broad categories. Things you want to do. Things you have to do. Every mother knows what it means to get up every morning and prepare breakfast even when you don't want to. Every dad knows what it means to go to work. Even when you don't want to. Every person understands that there is a delight directed duty and there is a kind of a duty that comes from a different place. God made Paul appointed Paul to be a apostle to the Gentiles. He's under a divine obligation to minister. He has a second obligation, however, and that is to the Roman believers who are in need and he understands and recognizes it. If your house is on fire, I have a divine duty to help you put it out. If your children are starving, I have a divine duty to share my abundance with you. If your soul is empty, I have a divine duty to fill it. If your eyes are wet with the tears of sorrow, I have a divine duty to dry them. When someone is drowning, we are automatically and immediately under obligation to do what we can to save them. Unbelieving Jews. Unbelieving Gentiles. Face spiritual death. And Paul knew. That he had a holy obligation to try and save them. And for this reason, the Greeks came to view themselves as wise. And so when Paul says to the wise and everyone else as foolish, he understood something because there were two dominant ideas and the dominant ideas were the source of wisdom and information. In that world, the dominant language was Greek. It was the the language of science. It was the language of technology. It was the, the, the language of travel, economy, and commerce. They once led the world in every single science, technology, invention, and innovation. Today, that language is English. English is the new window to the world. People want to know the American language, even though they reject American culture or American materialism or American arrogance or American pride. There are people all over the world who will go to a Bible study. Not because they're interested in the Bible, but because they're interested in the English language. Paul felt a keen sense of duty and obligation to preach the gospel to every living creature Do you have that same burden? Do you feel any obligation whatsoever? To your family, to your friends, to your neighbors, to this country, to the world. Is this nation a nation that you desperately long to see saved? Or do your eyes look outwardly to a desperate world where you know that they need love, they need forgiveness, they need truth, they need meaning? I was watching a video last night of a man who I knew a very long time ago. His name was Albie Pearson. He played second base for the California Angels a long time ago. In 1958, he was... The Rookie of the Year. He was on the cover of Life magazine. He was a cent, uh, uh, a played center field for the Senators. Washington Senators got picked up in the draft by the California Angels. It was the Anaheim Angels back in those days. He was the first person to swing a bat as an angel. He was the first person to get a hit as an angel. He was the first person to score a run as an angel. And in 1963... When Gene Autry owned the team, Marilyn Monroe came to visit and a young Albie Pearson was 27 years old. Marilyn Monroe was 36 years old and it was Albie's duty to escort her from the clubhouse out to the center of the field to receive a check for multiple sclerosis, which was her charity of choice. And Albie Pearson said it was a time in my life when I was in rebellion and disobedience to God, I. I didn't want to talk about Jesus, and I didn't want to talk about the love of God, and I didn't want to talk about the gospel of God. I didn't want people to think that I was some sort of religious fanatic. And he said, when I met Marilyn Monroe... My body became flooded with every single verse in the Bible that I could ever think of that God brought to my attention about the love of God, the forgiveness of God, the promises of God. It was as if I, there was this supernatural presence where I wanted so, so desperately to tell her about Jesus. And Albie Pearson said, I looked into her eyes. And he said, I have never seen anyone in my whole life who was more empty and more desperate and more broken. And he said, I ignored the Holy Spirit. He said, we went from the dugout onto the field. And like every star, as soon as the crowd's eyes laid upon her, she lit up. And she became the person that the whole world thought that she needed to be. He said some months later, like the rest of the world, I heard the sad news that her life was over. Apparently the victim of an overdose of drugs. He said that was when I knew. That I needed to share Christ with everyone That I came in contact with. One of those people was me. I happened. In the fifth grade to go to school with his daughter. Carrie. In the fifth and the sixth grade. She was my science partner. And we won the science fair. I did all the work. (laughs) But he told me about Jesus. I'm just a sixth grader. I don't know Jesus. I don't love Jesus. Everything that. Is wrong with me. That you could possibly imagine. But this ball player put his arm around me. And he looked deep into my eyes. And he said. God loves you. And Jesus loves you. And all I could do was just cry. All I could do was weep. I couldn't bring myself. To a position of submission. And obedience to the gospel. But sometimes. Sometimes. That's exactly what you need to do. You will experience a moment in time and space where someone desperately needs to hear the truth about life and love and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in verse 15, it says, so as as much as in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Also, Paul writes, I'm ready. By the way, it isn't. That you've run out of time that is important. It's what you'll do with all of today and all of tomorrow. And that becomes part of the important point of this. Passage Paul's external obligation to minister didn't preclude his internal desire to fulfill the obligation. And by the way, when he says I'm ready, there are two Greek words translated ready in the King James version of the Bible. One means prepared as in Acts chapter 21, verse 13, where Paul says, I'm ready to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. That's not the word that's translated ready here. It's a different word. It's the word pro thumos. It means to go forward in the spirit. In other words, Paul was ready or compelled because he knew that this was God's will for his life. In Acts chapter 20, verse 24, he says, I do not consider my life of any account dear to myself in order that I can finish the course and the ministry which I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. He's ready to go forward. Are you ready to go forward? Are you ready to stop making excuses about the past and the failures of the past and the setbacks in the past? It was Sidney Greenberg who wrote characters distilled out of our daily confrontation with temptation, out of our regular response to the call of duty, it's formed as Learn to cherish principles and to submit to self-discipline. Character is the sum total of all the little decisions, the small deeds, the daily reactions to the choices that confront us. Character is not obtained instantly. We have to mold and hammer and forge ourselves into character. Unquote. And so Paul says, don't be tempted to take the shortcut. Allow the difficult decisions to run their course. Are you ready to go forward? Some of you thought, well, I thought I was, but now I'm afraid. I'm afraid to talk to my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister, my neighbor, my friends about Jesus. It was said of John Knox that he feared God so much that there was no room in his heart for the fear of man. And it could be. That one day, that's exactly where you'll be. Where the love of God and the fear of God is what will motivate you to say the words of God. You know, Rome had a pagan problem. That was going to be a religious test for Paul. They had an imperial problem. That was going to be a political test for Paul. They had a mob problem. That was going to be a social test for Paul. But whether it was political, social or religious, Paul says, I'm ready. I'm ready to meet the test. The third motivation, faith in the power of the gospel. Look what it says in verses 16 and 70. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek for in The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. The just shall live by faith. Now, these two verses deserve careful examination. And not only do they serve as the motive for Paul's epistle, but they're also the heart and soul And theme of the whole book of Romans. These verses express the truth. The powerful truth. That Jesus Christ has the ability to transform and change sinful human beings into righteous human beings. This is the key. We can go from rejected to accepted. Unacceptable to accepted. That is the gospel. And every single word that Paul will write. From here on to the end of the book is going to be to explain and expand and punctuate what you just read. These verses are the secret to transformation and eternal life. These are the verses that can explode sin. I just want to very briefly, at least for now, focus on something about motivation, and that's boldness. Paul is motivated by boldness. He's unashamed. That means no need to apologize. He's not ashamed of the gospel. Paul's supreme motivation is to see Jesus exalted and glorified and to see other people saved from sin. And the moment Paul's supreme motivation manifests, nothing else matters. Not personal comfort, no personal opinion, popularity, reputation. Paul will never offer a compromised gospel to satisfy wrong thinking and wrong opinion and wounded sensibilities for people who want to continue in their rebellion and rejection and refusal of God. Because he knows. Paul is in effect saying, how can you ask me to be ashamed of the one thing, the only thing? that can save people from the emptiness and the darkness and the wickedness and the terror that will save them from hell and a life that doesn't matter. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And by the way, since the remaining letter is Paul's commentary on that one verse, I'm going to have a lot to say about it. The power of God, salvation, faith, Righteousness next week, by the way, we're going to look at in greater depth at verses 16 and 17. We're going to talk about the source of the gospel. That's God. We're going to talk about the nature of the gospel. That's power. We're going to talk about the purpose of the gospel. That's salvation. We're going to talk about the scope of the gospel. That's everyone. We're going to talk about the reception of the gospel. Believe. We're going to talk about the efficiency of the gospel. Therein is the righteousness of God revealed. And we're going to talk about the outcome of the gospel. The just will live by faith. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Let me just close with one illustration. When I was a kid growing up, like many of you, I loved Peanuts. I loved Linus and Snoopy and Charlie Brown. And there was a cartoon that featured Linus and Snoopy, and they were playing Fetch the Stick. And Linus threw the stick. And Snoopy's inclination being a dog is every molecule in Snoopy's body wanted to go and fetch The stick. But after a moment of pause and reflection, Snoopy decided against it. He said, I want people to have more to say about me after I'm gone than I. He was a nice guy. He chased sticks. And when I saw that cartoon, it made me think about me. And you. Chasing sticks. Where this world will pick up the stick and throw it in a particular direction. And you feel like you have to go and chase it. Are you motivated to stop chasing sticks and get back to what's really important? I ask you a question. I want you to revisit it just for a moment. What motivates me? For Paul, it was the opportunity of mutual ministry and mutual encouragement. For Paul, it was an obligation, a debt, because he owed Jesus everything. And, of course, for Paul, he was motivated by the transforming power of the gospel. What if I suggested to you to think long and hard and maybe think about embracing some of the motives that Paul adopted Instead of chasing sticks. What do you want to be remembered for? A.W. Tozer said. The widest thing in the universe is not space. It's the capacity of the human heart. Being made in the image of God, it is capable of almost unlimited extension in every direction. And one of the world's greatest tragedies is that we allow our hearts to shrink until there is room in them for little else than ourself. How big or how small your heart is will be confirmed by what's motivating you. Next week, verses 16 and 17, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that each person here will re-examine motives for ministry. Lord, I pray... That the solution to a shrinking heart would be an ever-expanding heart that cares about the needs of others. Mutual ministry and mutual encouragement. And that remembers that God has given us everything in Jesus. And of course, it's the power of the gospel. That can offer change and love and forgiveness and faith and hope and freedom from sin. And so, Lord, I pray for the person who just saw the stick being thrown. That they would stop and reflect and ask and answer. Who am I? Why am I doing this? In Jesus name. Amen. Let's stand.